Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to the Daily Daf Differently. I am Solomon Moshewitz, and today we're studying Masechet Shabbat, Daf Kufnun Vav, Tractate Shabbat 156a and b. We're getting close to the end of Shabbat, and what often happens toward the end of a tractate is that the discussion becomes schmoozy, more agadic, and less legal. Shabbat follows the pattern. This is a rich daf, so we can only scratch the surface. It starts off with legal material, how it's okay to mix up fodder for animals on Shabbat, as long as you do it in an unusual or awkward way called a shinui, literally a change. Then, with a really flimsy link, the discussion segues into agadic material. Does astrology have any validity for Jews? One of a series of stories about astrology may be the origin of the custom of head coverings like hippot for men. Finally, there's a new Mishnah about animal care on Shabbat. First, let's talk a little about Shinui, which we touched on earlier in the tractate on Daf 153b. In a Shomer Shabbat household, making tea is a complex operation on account of the halachic minefield you have to make your way through. Are you coloring water? Cooking the tea leaves? If you use a tea bag, can you remove it from the water, or do you have to remove the water from the bag? Ari Goldman said that no two Jewish observant households make tea the same way as one another on Shabbat, but none of them make it the same way as they do the rest of the week. This isn't formally a shinui, but it sure feels like one. Shabbos is a day when things are different. However, the popular idea that you can turn on a light switch with your elbow isn't correct. A shinui is how you have to do something on Shabbat that would ordinarily be forbidden when it's already halakhically justified for some reason. So... If you're preparing food on Shabbat for somebody who's seriously sick, you have to do it with a shinui. So the discussion on mixing up animal fodder on Shabbat leads to the following shinuyim, if you want to mix up instant cereal with milk on Shabbat. You should add the ingredients in a different sequence than usual. Milk first, then powder. Taking care not to make the mixture too thick so you're not kneading dough, and mix the bowl crosswise rather than round and round. It's typical that the Gemara raises a practical objection to this crosswise mixing business. It doesn't work very well. Rav Yehuda suggests you can help mix by also shaking the vessel. The Talmud never loses sight of the practical implications of halakha. Then the Gemara segues into a new topic. You know the old nursery rhyme, 
Monday's child is fair of face, Tuesday's child is full of grace, yada yada. Next comes a discussion a lot like that. It begins with a theory found recorded in Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi's Pinkas, or notebook. The day of the week you're born determines something about your personality and destiny. The destiny echoes themes from the corresponding days of creation. For example, if you were born on Sunday, you'll be either completely good or completely evil, because that was the day the light was separated from the darkness. Folks born on Monday will be contentious because the waters were divided on that day, and so on through the week. It goes against what we think of as the traditional Jewish perspective, to believe that your moral character is determined or even influenced by factors beyond your control. This uh, day of the week theory is countered by another theory preferred by Rabbi Hanina, who holds that it's not the day of the week, but the planetary influence on the hour of your birth that counts. You see, throughout the week, the day and night cycle continuously through hours influenced in turn by seven heavenly bodies, Sun, Venus, Mercury, Moon, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. And the ruling body is the important celestial influence. For example, if you were born in an hour influenced by Venus, you will be wealthy and unchaste. Under Mars, a spiller of blood. Jupiter is good news. Saturn isn't. Thankfully, Rabbi Yochanan dissents. Jews, at least, are not influenced by the stars and planets, or at least can transcend the destiny determined in the stars. There follows a series of stories that support this view. Avraham had despaired of having a child with Sarah because in his horoscope, Jupiter was in the West. Rashi explains that Jupiter was Avraham's planet and the West is cold and not conducive to procreation. God showed him that his destiny wasn't in the stars and planets, that God ruled over the stars and planets. It's interesting, though, that even then, <clears throat> it appears that God has to move Jupiter around to get the job done. Two stories follow, which make the point that acts of kindness can avert the decree of the planets. One of them relates how Rabbi Akiva's daughter was fated to die of snakebite on her wedding day, but she was saved by her act of giving food to a poor man. Today, we still ask the same question, are we in control of and responsible for our own character and actions? But now we ask it in a different way. Neuroscience raises a challenge to the idea that we're free agents. We know that our characters are not determined by the zodiac, but we worry that they're determined instead by our neural hookups over which we have only the illusion of control. What would our sages have to say about it? The last story in the series doesn't exactly illustrate, as it claims to, that Jews don't have an astrological destiny. It seems to accept that you do, but makes the point that you can take action to try to counteract that destiny. 
Here's the story, almost verbatim. From Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak II, we learn that Israel is free from planetary influence. For Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak's mother was told by astrologers, your son will be a thief. So she didn't let him be bareheaded, saying to him, cover your head so that the fear of heaven may be upon you and pray for mercy. Now he didn't know why she spoke that to him, one day he was sitting and studying under a palm tree, presumably not belonging to him, and his head covering slipped off. Immediately the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, overcame him. He climbed up and bit off a cluster of dates with his teeth. Two tangential points. It's interesting that she never told him about his dismal prognosis. Agav Orcha, by the way, we can also deduce that at the time of the Talmud, it wasn't a common practice for Jewish youths, at least, to cover their heads. It was a special pious practice instituted by Rav Nachman by Yitzchak's mother. We used to say, Yirmiyahu Niba Beli Kipa. Jeremiah prophesied without a yarmulke. The idea that whatever we do today was exactly what the sages, or even the patriarchs, did is the subject of a popular joke. Why do we Jews cover our heads? It says in Genesis, and God said to Abraham, Walk before me and be perfect. Would Abraham have walked around without a head covering? Of course not. So we follow his example. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.